we're going to get going. Welcome, everybody. I am not a microphone person, so bear with me. It's been a while. Uh, announcements. We are collecting for Trails Ministry. That's a ministry located in Beaver Falls. And what we are collecting, I have to read the email so I don't mess it up here. Um, hygiene items, pads and tampons, body, body sprays and lotions for the women and the students that they serve. Um, there is a bin at the welcome table that you can put them in, and our last collection date will be the fellowship week, October 31st. So you can continue to bring them in at any time um, through the end of October. So that being said, I'm going to open us in prayer, and we are going to hear from the lovely Sarah Hart. Father God, we are so very grateful for this time, Father God. I'm thankful for every women, woman that is here today listening. I pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to your message. I pray for Sarah as she um, speaks your word, Father God. Um, may she be empowered by the Holy Spirit to say the words you want us to hear. Calm our minds. Um, Anything that we have gone through this morning, uh, just give us peace and attention, and may your word be glorified this morning. These things we pray in Jesus' precious holy name, amen. Well, hello, everyone. I'm actually going to put this down here so I can see my notes. Good morning. I'm so glad y'all are here with us this morning. And I'm so thankful for the faithful teaching of Jenna and Carolyn as they have gotten us started in 1 Samuel. Um, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles, turn in your workbooks to take notes. We're going to start in chapter 7 this morning. And just a quick recap, we have started, um, we're looking at the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines and it has now returned to the land of Israel the last verse where we left off kind of starts to feel like a relief where it says, then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. Okay. But if you know Israel's track record, we really shouldn't sit too comfortably in that. <laughs> we'll see what happens next. But uh, first we're going to start in chapter 7, verse 3, where it says, Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away their Baals and Ashtoreths, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzpah and drew water and poured it before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzpah. So first thing here, Samuel acknowledges that inward repentance has to come before outward repentance. If we start repentance from the outside, kind of just hoping that it will change us from the inside, we will, it won't be long before we realize that we have failed. New behavior does not make a new heart. But when Samuel sees that the hearts of Israel have turned, he says, okay, great, now that your heart is in the right place, let's make our practice match our posture. So put off these other gods. Put them out. We serve only the one true God. See, Israel kept trying to keep a foot in one of each doors. Like, we want what the Lord is doing over here, but we, we also kind of are interested in what these false gods are offering us. 
And an interesting note here, the, the God of Baal was understood to be a God of prosperity and of fertility. And Ashtoreth was known as a goddess of sexuality and war. So essentially, Samuel is saying, put off the false gods of prosperity, fertility, sex, and war. It's a good thing we don't struggle with any of those these days, right? <laughs> so then it was, and so it will always be that we fight with these things. But I can't help but see the beauty of Samuel, the one whose mother struggled with infertility, earnestly praying for her pregnancy with him, that he's the one to charge Israel with putting off the false trust in a God of fertility. He says, no, I'm the product of trust in the one true God who opens and closes the womb, and he can be trusted only. We don't need any of the rest. So they gathered at Mitzpah, which is where a repentant Israel had gathered. Uh, we'll see that in Judges chapter 20 as well. And they put away the false gods. But what we know of the word repentance is that it signifies a turning. It's not just putting one thing off. It's putting one thing off and turning towards something else. So they've put off the old, they're pursuing the new, and they gather here at Mitzvah where they pour out water before the Lord. And this is an act signifying their emptiness before the Lord. They are pouring out their souls, showing their need and confessing their sin before the Lord. Verse 7, it says, When the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. When the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. The men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So we saw last week there are some parallels in the story of Egypt and Exodus. And here we see it again. The Philistines have seen the work of the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant was in their midst. And yet here they come back to fight again. The, is the Philistines see that the Israelites have gathered together. And they're sort of wondering, is a revolt coming? Are they organizing a rebellion? And so they send the lords of the Philistines to try and squash whatever might be brewing there. But this time, instead of trying to manipulate God into doing something for them, the Israelites call out to Samuel and say, cry out to the Lord for us. Their posture has changed. Instead of attempting to manipulate God, they have humbled themselves before him and are crying out to be saved. And the Lord hears their prayer. The text says that he thunders against the Philistines, throwing them into confusion, and they were defeated. What's interesting to me here is considering that Israel and the Philistines both heard that sound. They both heard the thundering, but one of them was saved, and one of them was thrown into such a panic and such a confusion that they were defeated. And first thing after this victory, Samuel sets up this Ebenezer stone at Mitzpah. And if you're familiar at all with the verses of, come thou fount of every blessing, this is where that line comes in where it says, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I come. 
Samuel is setting up a memorial for Israel to worship the Lord for what he has done and also to stand as a reminder, as a memorial to his faithfulness so that they might also stand in faithfulness to him. I don't know if you all read this this way, but the first glance for me starts to feel like, well, this feels a little flippant, right? Like, well, till now he's helped us. I guess we'll see. But I don't think that's what's happening here. I think it's the opposite. I think it is an open invitation to trust what God can do in the future when we know the only way we've gotten this far is with his help. His record will stand up to scrutiny, and we can base our belief on that foundation in his future for us. Verse 14 says, The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzpah, and judged Israel in all those places. And then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he also judged Israel. And he built an altar there to the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. So this is pulling out to show you a little bit what is happening in the rest of Samuel's life. Israel has returned to the Lord, and the Lord's presence has come back to them. The Lord is faithful in restoring all that Israel had lost. And the Philistines don't return. And Samuel leads the nation of Israel for his whole life, returning to Ramah habitually and faithfully to carry out his ministry to Israel. And here come his sons who are raised up as leaders in Israel. But Samuel had set his sons as judges over Israel, and we saw in our homework that this is outside the customary process for judges being appointed. Judges were not typically appointed familially, and in this case, they shouldn't have been. Let's look at verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the leaders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of, Israel, out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Unfortunately, just like Eli's sons, Samuel's sons are turning away for financial gain. And once again, we see that this is not working out well. And thankfully, the elders do recognize it, and they come to Samuel to say, hey, we need somebody else. But the problem comes when they ask for a different solution than what they really need. They ask for a king. Instead of seeing God as a king, they want a king like all the nations. They just want to be like everybody else. And there's a certain portion of that we can identify with, right? Like there's a reason why my teenager wants certain genes and the reason why she wants her ponytail to be a certain height. It's normal for us to just want to be like everybody else. But Israel is failing to remember that they were set apart to be God's people, a holy people, unlike anyone else they see. 
Despite his perfect history of faithfulness and provision, their trust is still misplaced. They've taken their trust in false gods and put that aside only to turn their trust to a human king. And this troubles Samuel. What I love is that like his mother Hannah, Samuel goes back to the Lord and prays candidly before him. In his disappointment for his sons in their failure, his disappointment in Israel's rejection, and ultimately their failure to see a holy solution. The Lord, the one who has seen the roller coaster of faithlessness in Israel, is not so phased. He calmly says, warn them, and then give them what they ask. This sounds so much like what a parent would do with a child, right? Like there are times that we will outline a couple of choices under the umbrella of our parentage to to just teach them how to make choices. And there's probably a really clear winner. But we say, go ahead. Here's what's going to happen either way. Make your choice. And our purpose is to teach them. My mom always said, there's an easy way and there's a hard way. (laughs) But she always made sure we knew what the consequences were. And over time, she helped us to discern what the consequences were for ourselves so that we would become informed decision makers. And that's what God is doing here. He's teaching them through their choices. Even though it may seem like God is throwing up his hands in exasperation, like just give them what they want. Just give it to them. I don't see that. I see it as an exercise of God that we see in 2 Peter 3, 9, where he says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. God is playing the long game here with Israel, but also with us. He will allow us to walk off the path in order to teach us, but he will also wait patiently as we choose that, and he wholly intends to restore us and redeem us in the end. Let's look at verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel's warning is pretty detailed. And do you notice a repetitive word throughout that a warning that he gives, he will take. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your harvest. He will take, he will take, he will take, he will take the best of everything you have. Now let's think about the God that they are rejecting in this rebellion. We know that the Lord our God only gives good gifts. And yet here they say, no, Verse 19 says, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. 
Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Listen to the kind of king that they want. They want someone who will judge them, go before them, and fight their battles. Does that sound like a man to you? Or does that sound like the God who has been faithful with them the whole time? And before we give them too much of a hard time for missing what's right in front of them, we have to also remember that many, many of the religious elite did not recognize Jesus for who he was. And we should take that as a warning to ourselves because we are no more wise, no more discerning, no more aware or self-aware than any of these people that have come before us. So I have to ask you, where are we missing him? Where is his work right in front of us? Where is his provision right in front of us? And we have failed to see it. May he give us open eyes and may we have receptive hearts to see. And does anyone else see the irony here that as Israel is rejecting God as king, God, as the chooser of the king, is still ruling over them. Even as he is being rejected and giving deference to the people's request, see here that God is giving Israel their king, Saul. But when he fails, spoiler alert, God will eventually establish the king he meant for them to have all along in David. Let's move on to chapter 9. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, real quick, I want to say, they're not saying he has some, like, giraffe neck or something like that. <laughs> they're just saying he was a head and shoulders taller than every, everybody else. And right away, we see that Saul has introduced him, has been introduced as exactly what the people have asked for. He is literally, his name means asked of God. And this is a little bit of a different connotation from what we see Samuel's name where it says, for this child I have prayed, slightly different. It's as if God is saying, okay, you wanted to keep up with appearances. Here's the tallest, handsomest man. He's healthy. He's wealthy. He's in, from an influential family. He is all the things that Israel thought would make him a good king. A king that the nations would covet. And I think they didn't want just status among themselves. I think they wanted status among the nations. I think they wanted someone else to feel the envy that they themselves felt. We have to be careful. They wanted a power play. And any time that we find ourselves grasping for power, we have to ask ourselves, whose power is it that we are grasping for? A lot of times we will find that if we are grasping for power, we want it a little bit less for someone else so that it can be a little bit more for us. What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to consider that he himself came here not to grab for power, but to serve his people faithfully even to the cross? If anyone was deserving of power, and if anyone could faithfully hold it with integrity, it would have been him but he had no need to reach for it. He had no need to make anyone else weak in order to demonstrate his strength. Does anyone else notice something missing from this description of Saul? Does it mention anywhere his relationship to the Lord? It tells you what he looks like, and it tells you what he has. I believe it's left out because Saul is a fairly accurate representative for his people. Verse 3 says, Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. 
So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you. Arise, go look for the donkeys. And if you looked in your map, you'll see he passed through several lands. This was a long journey, and they did not find them. And verse 5 says, when they came to the land of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? And we'll see the servant of Saul answers again that he has a quarter of a shekel. Here, we'll take this to him. And Saul says, okay, all right, let's go. Again, in contrast to the most high God of Israel, we see Israel's chosen human king not following through on one of the first duties we see given to him. Instead, he's more concerned about his reception back home. Even the servant seems to have some further awareness of this duty than what Saul has. And it was customary in those days when asking for direction and knowledge from a prophet or a seer, as this says, that one would bring a gift in return for their services. Now, this wasn't a bribe. This was not transactional. This was how the prophet or the seer would make their livelihood. And Saul is saying, look, I can't go up there empty-handed. I'm not going to go begging for this. A man of my stature, a man of my wealth would never do such a thing. So the servant himself has to offer up his own money, and Saul finally agrees. Verse 11, as they went up to the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way to up to the high place. As they come into the city, they see these women coming to draw water. And I'm not surprised that these women are happy to speak to Saul. We just talked about how cute he is. But God is orchestrating all of these details. The donkeys, Saul's father, the servant, these women, all of these things are leading Saul right up to Samuel. These donkeys could have gone anywhere. His father could have asked anyone to go search for them. These women could have just said, I'm going to keep to myself and go draw the water. The servant could have said, yeah, let's go home. I don't want to do this anymore. But God is working in ordinary circumstances to bring together his will. And another thing I just want to point out for later on, not for today, but for the, the weeks to come, the women are somewhat instructing Saul in what needs to happen in the tradition of the people. They are obeying the commands, and they're explaining they will not eat the sacrifice until it is blessed. So we know at the very least, he is not going to be able to claim ignorance later when this goes wrong. Verses 15 through 27 basically says that the that Saul had come and the Lord had revealed to Samuel before he came that this was what was going to happen. And when Samuel saw him, he said, here's the man I spoke to you about. This is him. And then Saul approaches Samuel and asks the question, can you just tell me where the seer is? And Samuel says, yeah, I'm, I'm that guy. I'm here. Can you imagine how surprised Saul must have been to just find him right away, that he's the first man he talks to? And then Samuel invites Saul in for a meal of honor. 
And Samuel and Saul ate together that day. It's so interesting how God is showing deference to his people by not simply allowing for them to choose someone, but for him orchestrating his own chosen person anyway, even if it's not something that he wanted for them. Samuel right away establishes himself to Saul as a prophet by saying, yeah, those donkeys, don't worry about them. They've been found. And Saul could have walked right away at that point. His question that he came to ask has been answered already. But instead, Samuel treats Saul to the best of the meal that he had prepared. He's seated in a place of honor at the table, and he's prepared for him a prime sleeping place. Saul must have been confused, and you can see it in the questions that he asks. He just came out to find his dad's donkeys, and here he's being treated like a king. And in the morning, Samuel arranges to meet with him privately outside the city gates so that his first word to Saul would not be known to anyone just yet. Israel is going to see this play out in the casting of the lots. So in chapter 10, we see that Saul takes a flask of oil and anoints, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel takes a flask of oil and anoints Saul. And then we see him play out several directions and signs. Do this and you will see this. Do this and you will see this. Do this next thing and then you will see this. Samuel reveals to Saul that he is to be king and gives him specific instructions where to go, what to do, and what he will see. And it's interesting to hear this description that the spirit of the Lord would come on Saul. His anointing was a physical expression of what was coming to him spiritually. Samuel gave directions to Saul on where to go and what to look for so that the confirmation of the word of the Lord would be evident through those signs. Now, as we know, the Spirit of the Lord is poured out in the New Testament, mostly recorded in the book of Acts. And what we understand about the workings of the Spirit after the resurrection of Jesus is that the Spirit of God rests on all believers. But in the Old Testament, under the law, the Spirit of God came to rest on individuals in certain circumstances for the purposes of his will. We see that the Spirit of God has come to Joshua, to Gideon, to Samson, and others. So for this to happen wasn't entirely unheard of, but it would also signify a special visitation from the Lord. And one thing as a point of understanding, when we see Saul here prophesying, it doesn't necessarily mean that he is telling the future right then. It means that he is speaking through an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And another interesting thing, if you look back at chapter 9, verse 7, when Saul says, listen, we don't have anything to give to this man, he says, the bread in our sacks is gone. Now fast forward to the signs from the Lord to confirm what Samuel said is true, and tucked in there is a little provision from God. Bread. A few loaves of bread. Even when the Lord is orchestrating the macro details of Israel crowning a king, he is also providing for the individual. Chapter 10, verse 9, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gebeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore, it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. I love that line in verse 9, God changed Saul's heart. We saw earlier that Saul did not have a notable relationship with the Lord of which to speak, and yet now we see him prophesying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and this is evidence that God truly did change him. 
The Lord knew he would need a transformation in order to minister to Israel, in order to lead them. And what a faithful God who transforms us and equips us even when we didn't know to ask for it, even when we don't know what to ask for. Saul wasn't going to be a perfect king. He wasn't even going to be a good one. But God had a plan for redeeming Saul's kingdom, and even before he was set apart to rule, his plan was in place. Should we not also trust that God will equip and redeem us for and through and in the work that he has called us to? Verse 9 says, and all these signs came to pass that day. I don't know why we need to keep hearing that the word of the Lord is true, but he is so gracious to keep telling us. They've already seen in Joshua 21:45 where it says not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Lamentations 3:37 says who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it. I could go on and on, but what I know for sure is that the word of the Lord is true and we see it over and over and over and it can be trusted. So we shouldn't be at all surprised to see that Saul is indeed indwelt by the Spirit of the Lord, and it indeed does rush onto him. He is found among the others, prophesying, praising the Lord. All the signs have been there. And once again, the people who should recognize what's happening are the ones asking the questions. What is happening? Is that Saul? What is he doing there? And I can't help but think of Eli seeing Hannah and assuming that she was drunk. Over and over and over, we see the people of God so far removed and lacking in familiarity with the presence of the Lord among his people that they completely miss it when it's right in front of them. But isn't it a comfort to know that no matter whether we see it or not, the Lord is still moving? If we miss it, we can trust that his hand is still in it. These last verses of chapter 10 explain to us how Samuel called the people together at Mitzvah And he warns them one more time, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And they go on to cast lots, and it is whittled down from the tribes, down to the clans, down to Saul, And when they go to find Saul, he's not there. He's hiding. I probably would have hid too. I'm just going to be honest. I'd be hiding probably somewhere (laughs) where I couldn't be found among the baggage. But it's interesting to me that God is giving them one more warning. He's just trying to churn up something in their hearts that might turn them from the way they're headed. But to no avail, the people still gather to cast lots. Now, this process was customary in that time to allow God to move among them and give direction in their decision-making. But imagine their surprise when God's decision becomes apparent and he's not there. And they mistakenly, of course, assume that God was the one with the problem, that God was the one that was mistaken, and they go back and they say, is he here? Is there somebody else? But he's there, and despite all the direct warnings that God has given about this choice to be ruled by a king, They're also surrounded by these signs, this red flag that he's not even there. But the Lord reveals Saul to the people finally, and Samuel calls to their attention the way that that Saul has satisfied their need for appearances. He's like, okay, here he is. Do you see that he's head and shoulders above everybody else? This is the one. 
And then he explains to the people the rules of royalty, wrote it down for them, and once again we see it being laid before the Lord. Israel has rejected the sovereignty of God, but God himself will not be laying down his sovereignty. And then Saul went home. There was no palace, there was no parade, there was no capital city. He went home to his dad. But it says he took with him men of valor whose hearts God had touched. God knew Saul could not rule Israel alone, but that he would need strength and accountability around him as well. We would be wise to recognize our need for those same people that will encourage us and strengthen us, people who will speak truth and accountability when we inevitably need that. And this is just one more way that the Lord remained the God of faithfulness and provision even in their rebellion. Along the way, even when he was giving into their errant request, he had not laid down his throne for them. He had not laid down his faithfulness. He had not laid down his care for them or his responsibility to them. We can be sure that the God of Samuel is our God as well. Even when he lets us walk our own way, he is sovereign whether we acknowledge it or not. He is moving whether we see it or not. He is still faithful, he still provides, and he still has plans to redeem even the worst in us. Praise God. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for being the God of faithfulness, the God of provision. I ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds, open our eyes to see your work before us. I thank you that you invite us into that work that you equip us, that you transform us and redeem us. We thank you so much for your son who has provided redemption through the cross. I ask now that as we go into our discussion groups that you would be with us, help our speech to honor you, help us to grow and learn from one another. And it's in your name we pray, amen.